millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, September 26th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, health care policy experts are weighing in on the latest bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Cassidy Graham does several things, as have all the repeal bills been. It's a, it's a complicated piece of legislation, and we expect that it's going to undergo many changes if it gets through the Senate, and the odds are not looking very good that it is going to get through the Senate. Find out how broadband access could be expanding across the state. In our StoryCorps segment, a conversation about a life lived fulfilling other people's dreams. And a new report offers solutions to reduce lead poisoning in children. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The impact of the latest bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act is drawing mixed reviews from state experts. Congress is working on a proposed health care bill referred to as the Graham-Cassidy bill. Republicans have been working to get it passed ahead of a September 30th deadline. They currently need 51 votes. After Saturday, the number of votes needed to change the ACA will be 60. The Graham-Cassidy bill is currently facing some opposition that could ultimately kill it. State Insurance Commissioner Mike Cheney has followed the congressional debate. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he doesn't think the bill would hurt Mississippians. Well, there have been several changes to the bill as it was proposed last week versus this week. But basically, the states have a little more leadway. Uh, they've leveled out the glide path, so to speak, of what states would receive. Mississippi was due to receive a very large $6 billion increase over a six-year period. That's now going to be a 10-year period, so it will be a, at least 25% per year increase over the previous year. The other changes would be uh, to the effect that the administration of the funds or the block grants as they would come in would be by the existing powers that be, in this case, the executive branch of Mississippi, which I'm very comfortable with. I think uh, we, we do a fairly decent job of spending the monies we have today, and that's essentially the way it would be. The legislature would have to sign off, but they would not have the right to say you have to spend it here, here, and here, uh, which is unusual with block grants. But that's the major changes as we see it right now at the present time. Can you give us a brief overview of the bill? Well, the bill basically takes all the dollars that's presently going to health care all across the country, does a level playing field on the per capita income on block grants, and the states that have been losing will receive more money. Uh, those dollars would go in block grants instead of being administered instead of being administered by the federal government as it is presently done 
to buy insurance for the those that need insurance and can't afford it, like we do under the Affordable Care Act, and to give grants uh, for Medicaid. In Mississippi's case, we would receive more money. The essential health benefits would be controlled by the various states. I can't imagine anyone changing the essential health benefits. You would have to get a waiver to do so. So I don't see a big change in essential health benefits when somebody says, well, pregnant mothers uh, would be charged more. That's just not true unless the various states were to change something. And there's several years before that would even be possible if it were possible. So the big, biggest changes are that we would get the money as a state and, and it would come to us to determine how to spend the dollars instead of going through the federal government and the federal government telling us how to spend the dollars. On the uh, health insurance side, essentially the states would have a little more leadway than what they have now, and uh, not a lot of change except that we would be able to determine uh, the type plans that would be sold. And I think it gives a lot of leadway if a state wanted to go to a single payor system, which very few people are talking about, they could. I don't envision Mississippi ever doing that. Uh, I do envision that those that might be hurt are folks that have embraced the Affordable Care Act, and that would be the for-profit pharmaceutical companies and for-profit uh, health care industries, and even the health care insurance companies that sell on the stock exchange and a nationwide. They have made a lot of money off the Affordable Care Act. That might change under this proposal by the Graham-Cassidy Act. So what would you say to Mississippians about this bill? Is it good for the state? Stay cool and collected. It looks like it will not harm the state. It would probably be a little better for the state in the terms of income than what we have on the Affordable Care Act. And I would remind Mississippians that we only have 28,000 people in Mississippi under the Affordable Care Act. We're under Medicaid. we got 760,000 in Medicaid. Uh, in the state would receive 25% more. So it's probably good for the state of Mississippi. Mr. Cheney, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. Thank you so much. Jamison Taylor is Director of Public Policy at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. He tells our Desiree Frazier health care needs to be changed even more. This measure has some good qualities and some bad qualities, but I'll say that many of the attempts to repeal Obamacare are still playing in the Obamacare sandbox. And uh, I would suggest that Republicans stop focusing so much on expanding insurance coverage for everyone, which is part of the left's push for socialized medicine, and instead look at the concept of health care for all. We focus too much on getting everyone insurance, but getting having an insurance card is not enough. Our real target should be getting everyone quality health care. So I think many of these attempts, including Graham Cassidy, they're focused too much on providing that insurance for all system, when instead they should look at how can we use the market and how can we use the power of innovation to get health care to everyone, to improve health care delivery. And one example of that would be to, for instance, look at cell phones. I mean, a cell phone is literally a miniature supercomputer that almost everyone in America has or can easily get. We need to think of health care more like cell phones. And when we start to do that, we can see that we should lift red tape on providers here in Mississippi. For instance, we should eliminate something called certificate of need, which raises health care pricing. We should also lift restrictions on health care providers. 
for instance, nurse practitioners. We should allow nurse practitioners to practice up to their full scope and up to the up to their full training. And we should also uh, employ more technology, more technological advances like telemed. We can use that to expand access. Mississippi Center for Pol- Public Policy's Jamison Taylor with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Coming up, technology access could be expanding across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More Mississippians could soon gain access to digital broadband. Mississippi ranks 49th for digital connectivity, falling behind most states in the country. That's according to the website Broadband Now. One of the state's leading technology companies is hoping to narrow that gap. Seaspire is announcing a multi-year initiative aimed at spreading the company's high-speed broadband footprint to additional home and business customers in the Delta and other underserved areas. Stephen Bai is president of Seaspire. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall, transformation depends on more people having access. Yeah, so the tech movement is all about, uh, you know, sort of transforming Mississippi and bringing technology to the communities and customers we serve. And the tech movement is really sort of a broad umbrella initiative that is encompassing a lot of the activities that we have underway and that we're going to put underway in the coming months and years ahead. So as part of that, what we announced today is you know, something very tangible uh, that we're doing, which is you know, working towards closing the broadband gap and bringing broadband to communities that are underserved and customers both on the residential side and the business side, because that is a sort of a prerequisite to unlock some of the gigabit economy going forward. You know, without broadband access and the access to the content and the information in the marketplace, we feel that companies and, and customers are, under, uh, you know, are sort of losing out on that. So by making this investment and bringing that broadband out to more and more customers, uh, we feel like that really unlocks a lot of opportunity for these markets. And you know, it's kind of sad to say, but you know, 40% of the population in Mississippi is underserved today with broadband, which is, is staggering. So we hope to plan so to help close that gap uh, and address that need so that's you- out there. The information that I have says that you're trying to reach uh, about 250,000 consumers with high-speed Internet. Are those consumers who don't already have access to high-speed Internet? They may in some cases and, and, and may not have as high speed as what we're bringing either. Uh, so, and it's actually consumers and businesses. We're not going to stop at 250,000, but that's sort of the initial rollout that we have planned. And, you know, depending on what the definitions are, and this is always, uh, you know, some debate, you know, what constitutes broadband. And what we're saying is, you know, we're going to bring in 25 megabits per second sort of in this first phase. Uh, we're actually going to deliver gigabit services to businesses over fiber, which we've been doing to homes t- uh, for some time now. And then we're actually going to move forward with delivering 100 megabits per second uh, with what we call wireless fiber, which is really, you know, 100 me- megabits per second to businesses and residences is a real step up from what's typically available today from the incumbents. What parts of the state are you talking about uh, initially? We're really targeting it where we have a lot of the fiber and spectrum today. And, you know, we're, we're not disclosing all of the markets. So we're launching in eight markets right now. And those markets are concentrated sort of in the Delta as well as North Mississippi. But, you know, we're not limited to that area and that geography. And 
clearly we serve the whole state and we intend to roll out more and more markets as we move forward as well. Uh, you just mentioned the poorest part of the state mm-hmm. uh, in the Mississippi Delta. Is this uh, service going to be something that's accessible to families in the Delta to afford? Oh, absolutely. Affordable and competitive is really what we're working towards. You know, often people would say, well, why didn't we do this before? You know, the technology has evolved considerably over the last three to five years that allows us to deliver that in an affordable way to many, many homes and many, many customers and businesses as well. And so that's really important. And I think it's only going to get better as we go forward. So talk about like the transformative aspect of high-speed internet access in areas where it hasn't been before. How is it that something like that is an important transformational tool for the state of Mississippi? You know, oftentimes today, one would have to sell one's products through, you know, the relationships they have and through the business and the distribution partners they have today. And there's a whole economy that is unlocked when those businesses are connected to the internet. And there's nothing preventing any business anywhere in the state serving customers anywhere in the world or within the rest of the country for any of their products and services. And whether it's downloading images of the products they're selling or the services they're offering, whether it's you know accessing through that, they, by, by connecting a small business that is in any small town within Mississippi, they can look like a big business that's serving many, many different customers anywhere in the world. And, and to me, that's really how you know they participate in what we call sort of the gigabit economy the market opportunity for those businesses becomes so broad. And so I think that's really how I think we transform the state. When you look at sort of the number of businesses here, there are so many small businesses that employ so many Mississippians. It's giving them a bigger market to participate in. Um, and the Internet provides that. Um, and the ability to create a presence that looks like they're in any part of the world is, is what the Internet can do for people. Stephen Bai is the president of Seaspire, and we've been speaking about the Seaspire Tech Movement Initiative. Uh, Mr. Bai, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much, Ezra. The company did not offer pricing information other than to say products would be, quote, affordable. Coming up, a report on policies that could help create healthier spaces for children. That's after a conversation in StoryCorps. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From lawyer to farmer to soldier and all the way back to the law, that's how Alec Kassoff describes the career journey of his late father. In this excerpt from the StoryCorps Mississippi tour, Kassoff tells his wife, Deborah, about the roundabout journey of his father's life. I I don't think that he was very happy as a child. And I, I do know that he always aspired to be a scientist of some sort or a doctor, perhaps, and to his mother, and I think probably to his father, the only acceptable profession was being a lawyer. So they made him go to law school. And uh, he never really wanted to do that, and I don't think he liked it very much. By all accounts, he was a really, really smart person. Um, He ended up going to Yale and then to Harvard Law School. And he graduated from law school in... The 30s? Yeah, I think it was 1931. So in the midst of the Depression. That's right. That's right. I mean, he got a highly coveted job with a prestigious law firm, and after three years said, to heck with this. I'm going to go to Illinois and try to be a farmer. He was, I think the word is an iconoclast. He was definitely, I mean, I'm sure, you know, eccentric applies as well. Uh To a large extent, at least from that point on, he did what he wanted. Um, He did some, some rather odd things in his life. 
the, the farming thing was odd because he didn't know how to farm. In fact, his cousin Ed, he told me, you know, he knew how to farm. He's a successful mm-hmm. farmer in Illinois. And my dad spent some time there trying to learn, but Ed told me he just, George just didn't have the knack for it. He was never going to farm. I think he was in Illinois when World War II started. At that point, he would have been, I think, 35 or so. But he wanted to go, you know, join the army and, and fight. My grandfather used some of his political connections to get my dad a, a commission a, a commission as an officer. And so my dad found himself, I uh, guess, as a lieutenant in the JAG Corps. He hated that, so he quit that. <laughs> and he just enlisted as a private and went through basic training. Have, have you inherited any stories about that? Well, all I know really is that he got injured in some kind of a training exercise, and uh, that was the end of his Army career. So he quit the Wall Street firm to work on a farm, and then he left the farm to go to war. He quit his officer's commission to become a private. He injured himself as in basic training, so that didn't work out. And then mm-hmm. what did he do when he left the Army? Well, I know that in the late 40s and early 50s, he was back in Illinois, and uh, he was practicing law. I think he opened an office with one other lawyer. It was in the course of that that he met my mom, who was working in an office. You know, by that point, he was uh, he was in his 40s. You know, and had never been married, and I imagine never expected to get married or have children. And how old were your parents when you were born? My dad was uh, 48. And my mom would have been 36. Uh-huh. I remember my mother saying, my dad had told her that the day I was born was the happiest day of his life. How does it make you feel to think about the fact that your dad said that? Oh, I mean, I'm glad he was finally happy. I don't think he had a very happy life for most of it. And uh, so I'm glad my dad was finally happy. And, and other things happened to him that made him happy. I mean, he... Uh, after he got married, he went back to school and got a master's degree in chemistry, which kind of fulfilled his, you know, decades-long dream of becoming a scientist. And then he, he practiced as a patent attorney after that. And I think he actually liked that. I think he actually liked being a patent attorney because he's around science, you know. Ironically, that may have led to his death, too, because he was working at uh, facilities uh, that had nuclear reactors back in the 1950s and early 60s. And, ended up getting cancer, along with a, a number of his colleagues that worked there. And my mom always suspected, I think it's possible, quite possible, that uh, he was around you know, radiation and, and got cancer because he didn't smoke. He lived a healthy lifestyle. Otherwise. To hear more of our conversations from the StoryCorps mobile tour, go to mpbonline.org. The StoryCorps mobile tour visited Mississippi through a partnership with the Mississippi Humanities Council, the MPB Foundation, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Kevin Farrell, the host of Money Talks on MPB Think Radio. Each week, Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, Associate Professor of Finance at Mississippi College, joins me and answers questions about credit, investing, saving for retirement, and all things finance. Also, we invite you to call in and share your successes in navigating the personal finance challenges that we all face. Money Talks, Tuesday mornings at 9 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Lead contamination could affect Mississippi children. A new report by the Health Impact Project shows lead adversely affects children and creates significant costs for individuals and taxpayers. Backed by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation 
and the Pew Charitable Trusts. The report is called 10 Policies to Prevent and Respond to Childhood Lead Exposure. Experts say lead exposure inhibits the brain's ability to control impulses and process information, making children more likely to struggle in school, drop out, and get into trouble. This could result in billions in public spending on health care, special education, and juvenile justice. Gridhar Mahaya is with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He tells us public dollars could be saved by preventing and mitigating the effects of lead poisoning. Lead, even at very low levels, we've seen in study after study, can have devastating consequences on kids. It really affects their brain development and has impacts on everything from their ability to process information and even things like impulse control. So we see impacts uh, later in life on their academic achievement, getting in trouble with the law, and even their ability to secure good-paying jobs later in life. Is it because their brain is still developing that it affects children? That's right. You know, the the brain is really actively developing um, all the way up through the early 20s, but um, maybe the most critical time frame for brain development is in the first several years of life. And that's the timing of lead exposure that we're most concerned about, whether kids are being exposed through lead paint, contaminated soil, or leaded water pipes. What is the most common source for lead that gets into children? I think what we know from decades of experience now is that exposure from lead paint in homes and then the contamination of dust in the home and soil outside the home is one main source that we focus on in the report. And the second that we've gained a greater appreciation for since the crisis in Flint is exposure through leaded water pipes. But in the report, we really try to emphasize that a comprehensive approach is critical because depending on your community, kids could also be exposed through lead in in the air that then um, deposits in the soil. They could be exposed through uh, food and consumer products. So a comprehensive approach is really required if we want to prevent as much lead exposure as we can. Does paint still have lead in it? Is it still made with lead in it? There is some paint that continues to be manufactured that does still have lead in it. But in terms of lead paint used in homes, um, residential paint, uh, lead was banned in 1978. And what we know is that at least 50% of homes that were built before 1970 have lead paint in them. So even though there's still not a lot of paint being produced now that has lead in it, it's really the legacy of lead paint use in homes in our country that's the key problem. Yeah, I was going to ask, you mentioned pipes, and those are older pipes, and you're talking about yep. you know older homes with lead paint. So does that result in people of lower income because they're most likely to live in older homes? That's exactly right. And one of the things that we emphasize in the report is that nearly every child could be at risk of lead exposure. But um, unfortunately, low-income children and uh, racial and ethnic minority children suffer disproportionately from lead exposure. And that's both because their homes and uh, oftentimes the communities that they live in Um, are older, they uh, have disinvestment, and um, there's uh, a greater likelihood that there's lead paint, contaminated air and soil, and lead pipes. This report is 10 Policies to Prevent and Respond to Childhood Lead Exposure. What tops the list? 
the big picture takeaway is that if we work to prevent lead exposure now in young kids, it pays dividends in terms of better health, greater academic achievement, and higher earnings for kids in, in later life. And society benefits and government benefits too, um, because it has to spend less on healthcare, education, and social services. The exposures that we really try to emphasize are um, exposures from lead service lines, so removing lead service lines um, from homes across the country, and there are probably at least 10 million. And the second is um, removing or remediating uh, lead paint in, in older homes. Those are two critical strategies for any community dealing with lead. Dear Thermalia is the Senior Policy Officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation with collaboration with the Pew Charitable Trust presents this Health Impact Project, 10 Policies to Prevent and Respond to Childhood Lead Exposure. Gerther, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. At 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at